0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. Anybody who hoped or naively assumed that the Pension Schemes Act receiving royal assent meant an end to the matter, allowing us to move on and talk about other things, will be disappointed to learn that almost everyone I've spoken to believes that uh, we have accomplished only the first step or perhaps the end of the beginning. The implications of several of its measures remain as yet unclear, and more legislation is required before others can come into force. The process of drafting the act may be over, but the process of understanding and implementing it has barely begun. It is sure to keep us busy. So our first order of business today is to take stock of the state of the act and see what's likely to happen next. Then, amongst its most controversial provisions are new powers afforded to the pensions regulator, which, it is feared, are drafted so broadly that a plethora of legitimate and sometimes necessary business activity might be forestalled, lest those undertaking it end up accidentally committing some new kind of crime, of which they were previously unaware. So we'll touch on perhaps issues arising from this, but more broadly perhaps on the changing nature of the pensions regulator. Our guest has previously called, I think, for it to to show its teeth, not least when presented with corporate failures. Uh, We hope that we don't see too many of those in the near future, but we anticipate there may be some more. Uh, So we'll ask whether the new uh, dentures with which it has been fitted are sharp enough, whether it's snarling in the right direction. And then finally, the Work and Pensions Committee's inquiry into pension scams rumbles along. It is widely believed scams are a growing problem. There is research from XPS just last year that showed more than half of pension transfers carried out post-lockdown flagged warnings. That either means the market is rife with fraudsters or that the monitoring machines still all run on the notoriously paranoid Windows Vista. But uh, I think we know which of those it is. The cost estimate of fraud ranges wildly, but it is thought to be in the billions. Changes in the law have been called for in order that uh, pots and transfers be made safe. Our guest today is in a good position to update us on this issue and on the progress made by the Work and Pensions Committee's inquiry. I'm only about a decade out of school. I can't shake the idea that doing work during recess means I've done something wrong. Um, I'm glad I didn't have constituents to look after during my break. But uh, joining me in detention today is Work and Pensions Committee Chair, Stephen Timm. So thank you, Stephen, very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. If we begin then with the um, Pension Schemes Act, it's a broad topic, the ramifications of the Act. They could go anywhere. We could go anywhere with them. Dashboards, climate change, DB scheme funding. We have the regulators there. New powers, of course, saved for the next segment. But if you'd like to kick us off, Stephen, from the point of view of the committee, I mean, what happens next? The bill is an act, so I assume your attention now turns to scrutinising subsequent regulations that give force to its its various measures. Are there any areas of it that stood out in its final drafting, final wording?
1: Well, we welcome the act. Of course, quite a lot of it arose from recommendations of the previous select committee when Frank Field was the the chair, arising from work the committee undertook about Arcadia, about Carillion, about British Steel. And and so the measures that are in the NOW Act are, are broadly measures, I think, that the committee will have supported. We had a particular interest in what happened in the bill about scams. We were worried that the opportunity was not being taken to address the growing scam problem, which, as you've said, is the subject of our current inquiry. So we welcomed assurances that the minister gave us about that, and we talked about that issue quite a lot in the committee stage of the bill and also at report stage in in the House of Commons. And I, I, we were pleased with the assurances that the minister gave to us and we'll now want to see what regulations come forward in response to the commitments that he made. So as you say, there's going to be regulations that we need to look at and reflect on. I think there is also the possibility, perhaps the likelihood of another pensions bill in a couple of years' time. Not this year, I don't think, but maybe next or or the year after. The Pensions Minister has indicated he wants another bill in this session of Parliament. I think we would be pleased if that opportunity arises as well, but whether it will, we'll, we'll have to wait and see.
0: I've just got finished writing about the first one. There's another one coming. (laughs) That's something to look forward to.
1: Given the sheer number of the
0: measures within it, and of course you've got this ongoing inquiry at the moment with scams, and of course there's the coronavirus crisis rumbling on which is taking up a lot of Parliament's time. I mean, are there any concerns, the sheer amount of secondary regulation legislation that's required, that Parliament and the committee will be pressed for time when it comes to giving proper scrutiny to these new measures? Or has enough time been set aside, do you think, or will be set aside when Parliament...
1: Well, I hope it will. I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait and see, I suppose. There is a, a parliamentary process. It's true that the parliamentary scrutiny process for secondary legislation is not always as thorough as one might like, although members of the House of Lords have the chance to look at it as well as members of the House of Commons. So I would hope that any problems that have not been picked up will be picked up in that scrutiny exercise. But I, I don't think we're going to see a kind of extraordinary volume here compared with a kind of speed at which this would have been happening in the past. I hope it's going to be manageable. It's certainly very important that the regulations are are right.
0: Absolutely. And, and if we look at some of the the more specific ones, and I think this will perhaps preempt the later topic on scams as well. The government, as I recall, defeated a couple of amendments in the second or the final reading of the bill towards uh, dashboards or on dashboards, partly, I think, to do with the ability for dashboards to offer transactions. As I recall, one of the amendments was to limit the, that ability in order that dashboards be prevented from being used by fraudsters, scamsters, and made safe. That amendment was, of course, defeated. So it's dashboards at least retain, in theory, the ability to offer transactions. Is that a, an area of concern uh, to you, given that your current work tackling scams, that dashboards, and of course there will be commercial dashboards as well now, that they will be safe from the activities of fraudsters?
1: Yeah, it is a concern. And I, I think that the House of Lords was quite wise in proposing and agreeing that amendment. I was disappointed that the government overturned it. But there we are. That's where we got to at the end of uh, the process. And we'll have to hope the the concerns that their lordships raised are not going to materialise. We'll need to keep an eye on, on what happens. But there we are. That's where we got. One amendment that I was keen on that I proposed, which was also unfortunately defeated, was the suggestion that people with a defined contribution pension pot approaching the date when they can access their pot ought to be enrolled automatically in an appointment with PensionWise, the free government service, which everybody speaks very highly of. Those who've had an appointment with PensionWise say they find it very helpful, 72%, I think, say they've changed their mind about what to do with their pension savings in the light of that discussion. So the feedback on the service is very good, but the take-up of it is still woefully low. And the government's ambitions to increase take-up Seem pretty feeble as well. So I was pleased that in the debate on this, the Minister agreed that it should be the norm for people to have a, a pension wise interview. I would like to see some concrete plans for how to make that aspiration a reality. Automatic enrolment into an interview would, I think, have done the trick. Uh, the Government opposed that, and, and my amendment, jointly tabled with the Conservative Vice Chair of my Select Committee, the amendment sadly was was defeated, but again, we'll have to keep an eye on that and 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 see uh, where we get.
0: Of course, just just finally on on that subject, I mean, what was the government's reasoning for rejecting that specific amendment, and and has the government proposed any replacement for that amendment that would accomplish the same thing, or is that something that you're still waiting to see?
1: No, I I, I haven't yet seen any concrete plan for how the aspiration of making one of those interviews the norm, which the minister signed up to. How that's going to be delivered, and that what moves we have seen have been uh, very feeble so far. I think the committee, others, are going to have to continue to press until we get some, some concrete movement on this. No doubt the government is worried about the costs of providing a service for a very much larger number of people. I'm the Treasury Minister, so I understand those concerns. But the reality is that. By denying the great majority of people the opportunity to have that discussion, we are building up lots of problems for the future, not least more scam problems than we ought to have. So, you know, I think it's in the government's interest to do the right thing here and work to make sure that pretty much everybody does, unless they definitely decided they don't want one does take up a, an interview with pension wise, but we haven't yet won that battle, I'm afraid. yeah, if we
0: move on to the um the expanded order of the pensions regulator and there are new powers that have been granted to it they do indeed give it teeth. There is some concern that nobody quite knows whether where and how it will bite. however, uh, fears that we've reported previously that there are the very broad drafting of definitions around for example, criminal liability could see innocent people hit with fines or even custodial sentences for innocent or until recently innocent activities. Uh, There is also fear that this could prevent them taking necessary action to, for instance, save their businesses, which of course is top of everyone's minds at the moment. But um, if we look at the expanding role more broadly, Stephen, I mean, the role is clearly changing, it is expanding. It has the power to be more interventionist than perhaps it was in the past, which is something I think you've called for in relation to corporate failures. Is the role evolving in the direction you hoped uh, it would? Are there powers that it has now that it, maybe it shouldn't, or powers it should have that doesn't have?
1: I'm broadly happy with what's happened to the regulators' powers. As I say, they've largely been determined, or at least influenced by the committee's previous work before I was the, the chair, or indeed before I was a member of the committee. Uh, looking at what happened with Arcadia and Carillion, British Steel, all things that nobody wants to be repeated in the future. So I think the government was right to beef up the powers, as it has done. We did have some discussion in the House of Commons about the fears that you've outlined, that the powers now seem rather uh, wide. But You know, I I think that is going to depend on what goes into the regulations and the guidance and the pension regulator uh, and the minister is very well aware of of these concerns. And of course, nobody wants them to materialise. So I hope we will see a sensible set of proposals coming forward, which put people's minds at rest. But we'll need to look at those details when they emerge. And if the committee needs to comment at at that stage, then, of course, it's possible for us to to do so.
0: And what is it that the committee will be looking for when it comes to evaluating the new powers and the guidance when it is eventually offered? Is there anything specific that you would like to see the regulator clarify?
1: No, I, I won't be looking for kind of specific things which would raise a red flag or would make me think that this was a step too far. What I would like is for those who've been expressing concern about this to be reassured by the detail of the proposals when they emerge. So I'll be keen to, to listen to uh, to what people have to say when they, they see those details, uh, and I hope that they will feel reassured at that point.
0: Absolutely. It was an interesting split. Everyone I've spoken to, it, it was almost a half and half split. And I think there was actually research from Sackers out the other day, which showed an almost exactly half and half split between those who were concerned about the new powers and those who had no concerns at all about the new powers. Everyone I spoke to who was concerned about them was a lawyer. And everyone I spoke to who was not concerned about them was not a lawyer. So I wonder if there's an element of a lawyer's fearing inexactitude coming in there. Well. But, um,
1: Let's hope the, the lawyers are re, reassured when they uh, when they see the, the detail. Um, right, in which case, I think we'll move on then to
0: the, the bulk of the programme, which is, of course, the scams inquiry. We can secure, I hope, we, an update on the scams uh, issue. It is, as we've said, an ongoing concern. I think there was an estimate from the People's Pension last year that placed the cost of scams at some £14 billion, pounds, and I imagine that is only going to rise. It may even be a conservative estimate. Stephen, you'll know better than I where to begin with, with this one. Would you update us on the progress of the, the scams inquiry? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it is a very big worry. And lots and lots of people have suffered huge losses. And, you know, I've been talking, for example, to somebody who's a nurse, I'm just around the corner from where I'm speaking to you from in the doctor's surgery, uh, an NHS establishment around the corner. She and her husband had some pension savings, they knew a financial advisor, they trusted this advisor. He told them about an opportunity to realise their savings early without really a downside. They believed him and they've lost all the money now and they face an enormous tax bill with no means to to pay it. And that happening to people as they approach retirement, with good grounds for being able to look forward to a reasonably comfortable retirement. To be scammed in that way is is literally devastating. And we've heard a lot about the real hardship that's been inflicted on people by this criminal behaviour. So we've now concluded the evidence section of our inquiry. We've taken evidence, all of this in public, of course. You can see it all on parliamentlive.tv in catch-up. Uh, we concluded with an evidence session from the the minister, and we will now need to produce our report. We haven't done that yet. We don't have a, a draft report, so I'm not able to tell you what's going to be in it. But I can just perhaps run through some of the points which struck me in the course of the inquiry, which we will certainly want to reflect on as we formulate our report. I mean, it is to me a very strange thing. But if a trustee or if if trustees are asked to make a transfer from their scheme to some other arrangement, and that other arrangement is included on the FCA's published warning list of suspect arrangements, then the law currently requires those trustees to go ahead with making the transfer. Now, if the Financial Conduct Authority is sufficiently worried about this to warn people, it seems to me that trustees not only should not be required to make the transfer, they should be obliged not to make it. So I, I certainly think that inclusion in the FCA warning list ought to be a red flag for future transfers from defined benefit pension schemes. I think there are some technical issues about whether the FCA warning list can directly be used in that way, but I would hope we can come up with some arrangement to make sure that, in effect, if something is on the FCA's warning list, then that transfer should not go ahead. That's one issue that's struck me. Another one that struck me is the very fragmented nature of the way we handle pension scams. There's a very interesting report published last September by the Police Foundation looking at this subject. And there's a table in that, which I've got in front of me, which just lists all the different bodies that you might want to contact if you've been scammed out of your pension. The Pension Regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Insolvency Service, HM Revenue and Customs, the Information Commissioner's Office, the Police Service, the Syria Fraud Office, not to mention Action Fraud, And the Pensions Ombudsman also made the point to us that he ought to be told when there's a scam. So there's an an enormous forest of bodies there that have got responsibilities in this area. And the the Police Foundation report quotes a specialist fraud investigator from one of the regional organised crime units as saying, and I quote, there are so many regulatory bodies, it's a good area for criminals to make use of the greyness and figure out the next scam. And, you know, I think this fragmentation is quite a serious issue about how we're addressing this problem at the moment. A lot of confusion about who you go to, if you've been scammed, who you go to, what happens when you've gone to them. But if you're in the industry and you become aware of a problem, who do you report it to? What happens when when you do? All these issues, I think, need some clarification. The point was made to us in the inquiry by industry participants that they feel the arrangements at the moment for them to share information about fraud isn't adequate. If they try and share it, they told us via the action fraud website, it's not really up to the job that needs to be addressed. There's this institution project, Bloom, which brings some of these bodies together now, that seems a good approach, combining efforts of different institutions to focus jointly on this very major problem. But I think there's a good case to be made that the status of that needs to be looked at and perhaps its status ought to be upgraded in some way to give it the clout that it, uh, that it needs. And there's also the issue very tellingly raised in the Police Foundation report about the, the way HMRC Uh, addresses this problem at the moment. And I'm just quoting what the Police Foundation report says. They say HMRC should take a softer approach when it comes to imposing tax penalties on those who have been defrauded. And, you know, for quite a lot of people who have been defrauded, the killer blow is a massive tax demand raised by HMRC perfectly properly because they accessed their pension early but the Police Foundation raising the question about whether HMRC should be quite so unrelenting in its pursuit of people who have been victims in that way. So, you know, those are some of the issues that have, have been raised in the inquiry that we'll certainly want to reflect on in drawing up our report. And I'm hoping we will have a report that we'll be able to publish within the, the next month or two.
0: Excellent. We we'll certainly look forward to seeing that. Um, on the subject of um, uh, of transfers and limiting the right to a transfer, as I recall, the government did commit itself to legislating on the back of the Pension Schemes Bill, now the Pension Schemes Act, uh, broadly speaking, to that effect. Uh, has there been any progress made that you've been informed of by the government in so legislating, or is that still something you're waiting on?
1: Yes. No, the, I think there is some quite good progress being made on the regulations which will be required to enact the commitments, welcome commitments which the minister did indeed make, his expectation is that those regulations will be publicly available and indeed will take an effect in September, October of this year. So I'm hoping that timescale will be achieved. Certainly the preparatory work is well underway. So I'm, I am hopeful that the, the timetable the minister signed up to is going to be delivered
0: course. And and just finally then on this subject of the, the plethora, as you say, of bodies involved when it comes to reporting scams, I, I think, and I should have got the figures up before me and I regret not having done so, well, we did run a story a little while ago looking at action fraud and the number of reports to action fraud that simply weren't investigated because they couldn't be investigated, not least because of a lack of resources. Uh, I suppose that is something that if you have too many bodies involved in this process, splitting resources, finite resources over too many bodies will have a detrimental impact. Is is action fraud or is, is there enough funding in place and in the right place to enable to just to keep track of the sheer number of reports of scams that are coming through?
1: You you raise a very good question, which I think our report is going to need to reflect on. The point was made to us by the head of the National Economic Crime Centre that fraud, more generally defined, accounts for I think his figure was about a third of crime in the UK and for about one percent of policing resources. So mismatch, I think, is one of the reasons we've got such a serious problem at the moment. Now, whether those resources ought to be in action fraud, it's undoubtedly true that action fraud is pretty thinly stretched. There was an expose in the Times some time ago about what actually happens in action fraud. I think there's been suggestions that sometimes people have been rather misled about who it is they're talking to when they call up the action fraud call centre There clearly have been some very serious problems there. I'm reassured that those problems have been addressed. But this question about resources, and whether we've got the resources to match up to the scale of the problem, I think that is one that we're going to want to uh, reflect on in our report. Of course. And just finally, then, um,
0: I'm going to do one of those things that journalists try and do occasionally, and they really probably shouldn't. But I know you said you can't preempt the results of the report. So I won't ask you to do that. I'm going to do the slightly roundabout way and saying, if you can imagine where we'll be in, say, five years' time, how do you imagine this issue will have evolved? Uh, Will we still be talking about scams in five years' time?
1: I've no doubt we will be talking about scams, yes. I think what's happened is, and Andrew Bailey made this point recently to the Treasury Committee, that when the pension freedoms were introduced, they were legislated for too quickly And safeguards that ought to have been provided at that point were not provided. And it turned into a massive charter, I'm afraid, for crooks. And that's the problem that we are now having to deal with. I'm hoping we will now be able to put in place safeguards that ought to have been put in place at the outset, and that this problem will be very substantially reduced. As a result, I don't think it's going to be eliminated. There were pension scams going on before the pension freedoms were introduced, and I'm sure there will be scams of one kind or another after the safeguards are there. But I'm I'm hoping we can now put in place the essential safeguards that ought to have been put in place five years ago, and that will have the effect of substantially reducing this problem. I mean, I think that there's another issue here, which is that a lot of this is now moving, indeed has moved, online. And that's, of course, something that developed very, very quickly, that was a much less significant issue five years ago, when the pension freedoms were legislated for. And I think policing law enforcement generally is going to have to move pretty fast to catch up with the scale of crime, of fraud, moving online. Now, there is an opportunity coming up. The government is uh, committed to introducing an online harms bill quite shortly now to address some of the the problems that widely acknowledged are arising from such a lot of activity taking place online. And the things they've got in mind are things like child sexual exploitation, massive uh, and very disturbing problems. But it looks as though they're not Planning to address financial online harms. I think the view, my view, and I think the view of my colleagues cross party on the committee is likely to be that financial online harms ought to be addressed in that legislation as well. Not to do so would be quite a significant missed opportunity. So, what I'm hoping that I'll be able to do once we've seen this bill and exactly how it looks, and if indeed this omission is uh, along these lines, as we suspect, I'd like to table an amendment to try and put financial online harms within scope of the bill so that we can start the moves to get a grip on the, the scale of this very, very serious problem. Not, of course, just a UK problem. It's a worldwide problem, maybe a big one for us because such a lot of our economy is in financial services.
0: As you say, it certainly does seem the, the most natural place to put a measure like that.
1: There is some separate work going on on online advertising, which the government is saying that should pick this problem up. But I think my view and I know the view of a lot of people in the financial services industry is really it needs to be in this central legislation that's coming forward shortly to recognise the scale of financial harms as a part of this large problem that the extraordinary success of the internet that we've all depended on so much over the last year, not least for doing podcasts like this one. But, you know, the, the problems need to be addressed as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, to the uh, financial harm done by surfing Amazon whilst bored of an evening as well, I'm sure, but I'm not <laughs> sure there's a huge amount the government can do about that one. Um, excellent. Well, in which case, I think that brings us nicely to the close of the programme. So thank you very much, Stephen, for taking the time to speak to us. Um, thank you Ben, for having me. Please invite me again. I'm sure we'll certainly be doing that, yes, when it comes to the the second pension schemes bill, which I've now learned that we're going to have to look forward to. So that'll be interesting. But um, no, thank you again. That was very good. And for the listeners, thank you for staying with us. And we will speak, you will hear us again in two weeks' time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.